Hey everyone, welcome to the 5 Beer Plan. I'm Brian, and this is the ongoing saga of an everyman's ale trail. In this episode, I'll talk about the history of Oktoberfest, finish off my interview with Zach Bigelow from Ramshackle Brewing in Jonesville, Michigan, and review Kiwi's Crush by FBP Homebrew Project. In this segment of Tales from the Trail, pull up your lederhosen, it's time for Oktoberfest. So, Oktoberfest is an annual festival in Munich, Germany. It's typically held over a two-week period and ends on the first Sunday in October. The festival originated in October of 1810 to celebrate Crown Prince of Bavaria, who later became King Louis I, to Princess Therese von Sachsen-Hilberg-Hausen. I apologize. The festival ended five days later with a horse race that was held in an open area to be called Theresenweiss, which means Theresa's Green. The following year, the race was a state agricultural fair, and then in 1818, they introduced booths that would serve food and drink. Well, wouldn't you know it, by the late 20th century, these booths developed into huge beer halls made of plywood with interior balconies and bandstands. It's interesting, each one of the Munich brewers erects one of these temporary structures every year with seating capacities up to 6,000. The total amount of beer consumed during an Oktoberfest is upwards of about 2 million gallons. Of course, what would a festival be without a parade? So, their beer wagons and floats along with people that wear traditional folk costumes. Prior to COVID, Oktoberfest drew more than 6 million people each year, and many of them were tourists. I'll be honest, I think it would be a blast to go and experience Oktoberfest just one time. Well, you know, here in the U.S., we have a number of U.S. cities that also participate with Oktoberfest, modeling it after the original one in Munich. These, of course, are popular celebrations featuring beer and German food. So, I was looking online, and I found a little timeline about Oktoberfest. Uh, interestingly, in 1910, that was the 100th anniversary, celebrated with a record-setting consumption of beer. In 1913, the largest tent, Brau Rosel, is built with 12,000 seats. In 1985, there was the 175th anniversary that was celebrated by roughly 7 million people, which was the most visitors in the festival's history. And then, of course, in 2020, Oktoberfest was canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. Not surprisingly, Oktoberfest has been canceled 25 times due to disease, war, and even inflation. As it's customary, only beer from Munich breweries are served. The six breweries include Augustiner, Hackerspor, Hofbrau München, Lohenbrau, Palaner, and Spaten. At some point in history, the festival was moved to September to allow for better weather. And as mentioned, the last day of the festival is the first Sunday in October. There are a lot of cities around the world that have created their own celebrations, and the largest one outside of Germany takes place in Kitchener-Waterloo in Canada. In this segment of Homebrew Hijinks, 
it's time for another segment on bottling. I neglected to get a final gravity reading, but since it would be similar to that of my first brew that this is based upon, I figured it to be around 5% ABV. To ensure no contamination will occur while bottling, I prepared my equipment by submerging bottles, caps, tubing, and bottle filler in the no-rinse disinfectant solution prepared in my one-gallon pitcher. I used something called PBW, which seems to work pretty well. You can get it in powder form, but I use it in tablet form. It's necessary to ensure that all surfaces are in contact with the solution for at least a few seconds. I placed all my bottles in my dish strainer and then began the process of connecting the hose, bottle filler, and fermentation jug together. Once I was ready, I opened the spigot on my fermenter and began to dispense the beer with the bottle filler. Before filling each bottle, I added one of my carbonation tabs into each bottle. When completed, I managed only six bottles of this brew due to my not hitting the final volume, but again, I'll keep trying to dial that in. Once finished, I cleaned up my fermenter and brewing equipment and placed the bottles in a box in the basement for the two-week bottle conditioning. I'll share my thoughts on the beer later in the episode. Now, it's time for Barstool Banter. Listen in as I finish my interview with Zach Bigelow from Ramshackle Brewing. This guy is a deep thinker. We talk about inspiration for beer recipes, how to achieve a consistent beer batch after batch, and his beer drinking preferences. Once again, I have to apologize for the sporadic sound quality. I really am going to have to have a serious discussion with my sound engineer. How long have you personally been brewing, Zach? 17 or 18 years. Wow. Okay. Off and on. So you moved right from homebrew right into the professional world and... Yep. Not donating time or anything, helping out. Okay. Trial by fire. Lots of books. Sure. Uh, um, let's see, it was 2013. The Cybel Institute actually slipped and let their entire course syllabus for the Brewmaster's BA. Okay. They slipped up and released it to the public, along with all the books. So I seen that. I bought every single book and read through those. That's what I did. All right. And that's another thing, I think, with the brewing side of things, you always have to be learning and trying to stay on top of what the latest trends are, what the latest products are. I mean, we've gone from fresh hops to pellet hops to, you know, now we've got these uh, super high cryo hops, and then I think there's even more liquid stuff yep. right now. Biolized. It's crazy. Where do you get end up getting your supplies from? Everything is, for me, is style dependent. Okay. So country of origin depends on the style. So if I'm brewing the English drizzle, it's everything English you know, English malts, English hops, English yeast. I even mimic down the water profile to London. So that's you're getting, technically, you're getting London water that would be going in there. That's the only, that's the nearest water source that I could find all of the num numbers for. So do you have a reverse osmosis system here then that you use, or do you just kind of purify it? I work with a company out of Iowa called Ward Labs. And every three weeks I send, send out my water. And I have cartridge filters that act as a sediment filter that take out what, what is needed and leaves whatever else. Okay. Uh, mimic then London. Yeah. I've got a cartridge for London. I've got one for Mexico City because believe it or not, 
Mexico City makes the best Vienna lagers. Really? Yeah. The original Corona Familiar is a Vienna lager. It's an adjunct Vienna lager. Okay. Some of the best Vienna lagers you think German? Hands down, it's been me- from Mexico. Did not realize that. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize it until about four years ago. I think that's why English beers taste like English beers because of the minerals and things that have gotten in the right. body. Same thing, you know, on the West Coast, you know, the water tastes, or Michigan, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even from, you can go from Jonesville to Hillsdale, or, you know, if anybody listening, Jackson to Ann Arbor, the water is totally different depending on where it's at. I know a lot of brewers these days are using filtration systems or even reverse osmosis and then treating with minerals and things to try to get the water profiles they want to hit you know that flavor profile and it sounds weird to say well i'm adding things to the, the water but you're just trying to get a consistent flavor profile in your brew each and every time so when i come in and drink it into a drizzle a month from now it's going to taste the same yep or if you got it out in a tap somewhere else in a restaurant it's going to taste the same and it's not chemicals it's like hey i'm adding chalk i'm right. adding yeah, calcium carbonate calcium carbonate I, sometimes it's even antacids Calcium in the, in the antacid actually works as a great buffer. Interesting. Not the free kind, though. <laughs> no, not those. <laughs> to be honest, so I just started drinking this English drizzle, and, and I've had this before. It's just got such a nice flavor to it. It's so smooth. Clear as clear can be, which I think is another, another sign of the fact you've got things dialed in where you want them. Yeah, and for me... The whole hazy IPA thing, it's lazy, it's scary. I pride myself on if the beer is clear, that means the brewer's doing his job. Sure. You know, I miss the days of that crystal crisp clear IPA. I wish those would come back. You know, every brewer's got their own kind of slant. You know, each one of the beers here, even though they're slightly different colored, so I've got some golden color, got some amber, got some dark brown, they're all very clear. So the clarity on those is just i mean it's amazing zach really so you, you have done your job and, and you're right it does show that you want to highlight the fact that you know what the hell you're doing when i first saw this on your menu i was like oh it's going to be super huge and bitter but it's just got like such a nice soft caramel toffee-ish kind of flavor to it for me that the english hops just blend it perfectly mm-hmm. it's just straight east kent golden okay that's what i was going to ask it's solid and since that one is our uh, flagship and it goes out everywhere, I had to extend the shelf life on it. So extending the shelf life meant I had to use alpha amylase, which is an enzyme. Mm-hmm. One of the benefits of it is it breaks down the protein that is a precursor to gluten in the process. So it's technically gluten removed by process as well. I've had it tested and it comes out to be under one part per million of gluten. Wow. Well, I mean, that's good to know. It's not something that I would have ever thought of before as far as distribution goes. As I was saying earlier, I just started homebrewing this year. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Welcome to the addiction. (laughs) It's not quite to that point, although I feel like if I'm not brewing something, then I'm being lazy. So I have a one-gallon system. It's just a one-gallon carboy. I've got a stock pot that we had at home. Perfect. Wife got me a kit two years ago. For Christmas, and I was like, "Okay, I'll do this." Well, Christmas went by, I didn't do it. Another Christmas went by, and I was finally like, "If I don't do it, I, I'm never going to do it." So, one of the the things that uh, 
another brewer told me, he's like, listen, he said, if you're going to brew this up, get fresh yeast, get fresh hops, do it. Probably the best advice I ever had because fresh ingredients make a huge difference. It does. Beer. So first kit, first one was an extract kit. It was a session IPA. Nothing too special. It came out right. It was Cascade primarily, a little Centennial, a um, little Chinook. And uh, went to Florida in February, stayed at an Airbnb, and uh, the host was growing her own passion fruit. Oh. She, she came from uh, Taiwan, and she brought one in and one morning for breakfast because she was, it's an Airbnb, but she treats it like a B&B. It's weird. But anyway, we had breakfast every day. It was pretty wonderful. So fresh fruit every day. So she came in one day. She had this passion fruit cut in half. And it's not like, it's a it's a really deep purple passion fruit, but Hull is. Yep. And the inside was just this like puce or uh, like yellowish colored you know, seeds on the inside. I'm like, this is kind of weird. And she's like, it's passion fruit because I've never had it before. I'm like, all right, I'll try it. Tastes a little bit. And like my whole face... I think collapsed on itself starting from my lips because it was so sour and tart. And I thought, oh my goodness, this would make a great beer. So internet's a great thing, right? Yes. Got on the internet, found myself a recipe, uh, pleaded with her to give me some passion fruit to take home. And so I found a passion fruit uh, sour ale recipe online, brewed it up with citra hops primarily, conditioned it on the passion fruit. And it came out pretty decent. It was an all green. So I'm like, so that's when I really got the bug. I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. So so then I did a, a, the third one was a, a clone of the first one. Instead of using Cascade, I used Taihiki. Oh, nice. So Taihiki's got a little bit more of a citrusy yep. profile to it. And that was also all green. Turned out pretty decent. Just did a, a, a dry Irish style, which was okay. It was a little too bubbly because I'm still using the fizz tabs for okay. carbonation. Yep. One of the things I've got to kind of figure out dialing is whether I'm going to start using priming sugar or not with each of my bottles. I just brewed up a hazy IPA. Okay. So it's got HBC 586, uh, Strata, and Citra, I believe. And so I did that on Saturday. Uh, 72 hours later, I just dry hopped yesterday with like twice as many hops as what I had before. And then right before I bottle, I've got a cop with like another 28 grams or something of hops. Yep. So it's crazy, but like I mean, it's it's super hazy. I mean, you cannot see through it. So, lazy, maybe, but I've never brewed that style before, so I'm kind of curious it, to see how it's going to turn out. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, they are fun. You know, for me, it's a day off. I look at it as, all right, you know, once I see the hazy on, on, on the brew schedule for the week, I'm going, all right, this is the day off, so to speak. Okay. It's not as technical. I don't have to worry about filtration as hardcore. Mm-hmm. It's... Let it flow. Let it yeah. let it do its thing. And for the most part, it seems like even with like the the hazies, you don't really add the hops until after you do flame out. Crush your hops in there and let it set. And yep. You know, so really, it was sixty minutes. Same thing. I was like, well, I, it's not going to boil over. I guess I can go and like run some errands. I left it alone. I went out and ran some errands. Came back and finished it up. And I was like, it's kind of cool. Yep. That, so, that's kind of how I, I look at it too. Is yeah. Just, you know, again, I, I'll be curious to see how it turns out. Whether it actually fits what I kind of expect it to be. Yeah. So I've also thought about doing Kolsch, but again, I don't really have a whole lot of space to cold crash stuff, so that's another challenge I have. Gotcha. So, so for the time being, I'm just going to be a lazy home brewer and just I'll deal with the particulates and the, the non-clears, liquids, which is totally fine. It is. You're, lear- you're learning the steps. You're learning that sanitation is 99% of it. Exactly. <laughs> be- before you know it, you're going to be a glorified janitor. I already feel that way. 
Yeah, I do too. And I'm only doing a one gallon carbo. At least I can get my with my hands in, and that's it. Whereas you've got to deal with these huge, massive kettles. Yeah. <laughs> and then then you take it take it home with you too, and you start scrubbing on the dishes at home because you're so used to seeing those spots. They got to get away. <laughs> they got you know you can't have those spots. So so are you saying you've got PWB at home and you you sing some star sand? <laughs> actually actually no actually I, I I just bring home some of the the caustic from here when I okay. got something nasty fill up a empty water bottle and a little bit of two percent caustic and blast our stainless stuff at the house too. What is your favorite part of brewing? For me, it's the flavors. It's, it's okay. actually being able to play around with different flavors and different techniques because it's not just a recipe. For me, it's not just, hey, add this grain to this water. It's, I'm going to pull a little bit of chemistry. I'm going to pull a little bit of physics with the heat. I'm going to pull a little biology with the yeast. I need to make sure that, that the final product is a hospitable environment for the yeast because that's... That's my workhorse. Right. That's my buddy. I want to keep my buddy alive. But before that, I I get to then play with the fine tooth, you know, fine tooth combs and the, the, the paint brushes, where a little bit of like a chocolate malt and a little bit of the caramel sixty, or hey, I'm going to use this two row from this region because I know it brings a little bit more earthiness to it. I get to then build the beer based on the style I'm going for. I can bring all those ingredients from that, you know, that's one of the best things too, not to get sidetracked, but I can pull all the flavors from the world. You know, I can get grain from Lithuania, Romania, wherever, or I can get it from Canada or Japan. I can get all these ingredients and bring them in and find out what their water was, that they were using, you know, what their water close enough is. I can serve that beer that they would be brewing in a way, too. you come up with all your recipes on your own, or do you... Everything's from my, my own. Okay. What I do is I'll, I'll pick a main flavor and style and highlight, this is going to be a Russian Imperial Stout or a Baltic Porter. Here's the, you know, then according to the beer judging style guides, what flavors am I going to want to highlight out of those and keep it in style? Sure. I think that's another thing I keep finding also with within the brewing community is that there's a massive amount of creativity. But I find that like everybody wants to add their own special twist, whether it's some sort of local ingredient that they have, or whether it's adding something weird like conditioning on donuts or Guilty juniper berries from you know whatever the case may be. I mean, I think that's I think that's the cool thing about the industry today is that you. Or if you're, if you're looking for it, you're going to find it. Somebody's done that, probably. Unless it's very specific to your region. Yeah, know? yeah, like using pawpaw. Exactly. I mean, I use, use 500 pounds of pawpaw in a beer that was released on 11, you know, oh, nice. November 1st. Where do you get your pawpaws from? Uh, just south of here, there's a farm called Rebel Farms. And they're, like, off the grid, all natural. I learned about them through a CSA. And buying their vegetables and things like that. That's where I learned about it. And then they said, hey, we have pawpaw. I'm like, we're going to be friends. And then for puree, there's a actual pawpaw nursery grower in Owasso, Nash Nurseries. We'll buy their frozen puree, and I'll add that conditioned it. 
So I don't know if you found that to be the case as well. The profile tends to be a little bit more bitter when using fresh fruit. Yeah, and you got to compensate for that. Back down on the bittering hops because you know you're going to be getting okay. some bittering from, you know, you got to take from that, say, like the strawberries. We have sure. one called Granny's Jam that I use 450 pounds of fresh strawberries. <laughs> I hate strawberries by the end of this thing because, you know, it's just yeah. me, my wife, and a couple others. We're popping the greens and we're Ugh. blending them all up. So, like, I know that's going to be bitter. So I take a little bit of, of the bittering hops back. Congratulations again on four years. That's pretty awesome. Thank you. Making it through COVID and uh, just in the crazy environment that we live in today with the hard to get supplies. and It's not hard to get supplies when you stay local. And see, I think that's something that people overlook. You get to the, the larger size breweries, I know it's hard. Yeah. So do you have a favorite style of beer that you'd like to drink? If I'm going to a different brewery that I've never been to, it's always Pilsner or a Pale. Yeah. Those are my benchmarks because if they come out to style, I know I'm in safe hands. That brewer knows what they're doing. That's how I test a new place. Uh, if I'm just out in something low ABV, okay, don't matter what it is really, <laughs> just low ABV and I'm good for maybe one or two. You know, once you crest that 40-year-old mark, you learn your limits. You're not Superman anymore. Very true, and I have to laugh. I was at a beer festival uh, two weeks ago, uh, Northwest Ohio Barbecue, down to Fort Crick and Defiance. They had a barbecue buffet as well as 20 local breweries. So I always know if I go to something like that, I need to front load a few tums. <laughs> oh, man, that sounds fun, though. Oh, it's a great time. Northwest Ohio craft breweries. Yeah. And the beers are all, I mean, very much like yours, very light, you know, low ABV. Are there any beers you don't like to drink? That's a tough one, really. I find if it's to style. Oh, I should take that back. Anything with grape. I don't like grape okay. anything. But as far as, to, you know, if it's to style, no problems, man. To be honest, I'll try anything once. I mean, I think that's the only way you learn whether you like something or not. Oh, yeah. Do you have any beers out there that you've always wanted to try but never been able to? So, like, everybody's like, oh, Pliny, or they're like, you know, the alchemist. I mean, I mean, I won't turn them down, but I'm not dying. You know, I, I don't have any grail beer. To me, it's more style-based. All right. You know, because it is what it is at that point in time. If it's a good IPA, it's always going to be a good IPA. You know, if it's a good Landers, then, yeah, it's going to be a good one. You know, it don't matter what the name brand is. It's just, for me, it's more of the style. That's a good answer. I like that. One last fun question before we wrap up, because I know you've got to get the doors open. Yeah. If you were a beer, what style would you be and why? That's a pretty good good question. I mean, I'd like to say an American Wild Ale. There's just so much everywhere that you can pick up on as far as influences. If you close yourself off into, you know, this is my box, I believe in this ism, then you're going to shut off a lot of either positive or negative influences. And I've always been the type of person that I'll listen to everybody and anybody. Because just because I don't agree with it doesn't mean I'm not discounting you at all. There may be parts of it, but I want to learn it. Yeah. I want to learn why you believe that, not just because. Sure. To me, that's the interesting part. So, I mean, like an American Wild Ale would probably suit me just fine, you know, just 
picking up a little bit here, a little bit there, and rolling with it. I think based on our conversation so far, I think that really fits you as well because uh, you start out, as you said, with the whole ramshackle system. Basically, taught yourself how to brew, you know, read all you could read, and here you are, four years later, professionally brewing. Plugging away at it. Thank so, you. That's awesome. Well, hey, I appreciate you spending time with me today. I appreciate uh, you coming in. Yeah, absolutely. It's always nice to come back home and to uh, be able to drink local. Last call. It's nearly time to wrap things up, but first, one more for the road. This episode, I'm drinking Kiwi's Crush by FBP Homebrew Project. From the brewer, a down-under twist on a session IPA. Instead of Cascade, New Zealand-grown Taihiki hops are added in the boil and dry hop to impart a parching citrus bitterness profile that makes it even more crushable. Without further delay... So this is a 5% ABV Session IPA. As we learned about during the brewing process, the dual-use New Zealand-grown Tahiki hops will give citrus notes and tropical fruit leanings. When I pour it out into my glass, it pours kind of a pale amber color. It has a aromatic nose, definitely getting a little bit of that tropical vibe that was in the description. A little overcarbonated. It's got a, a nice fluffy head. So frankly, this is one of the things that uh, moving forward I'm going to continue to refine. First sip impression here. So it's got kind of a slight malty sweetness on the palate. It's got a, a mild hop bitterness associated with it. Leaves you with a little bit of a drying citrus kind of finish. It's definitely got a little bit of a crispness to go along with it. Definitely a, a pretty decent uh, session uh, IPA here. I really enjoy the slight variation here, moving from the Cascade, which is very earthy, very bitter, to more of a slightly less bitter, a little more tropical, a little more citrusy feel. And I will say one of the things that I did inadvertently do when I dry hopped this beer, I had fully intended to dry hop it with Citra. I really felt that the citra was going to bring out those tropical notes of the Taihiki hops. In my excitement to dry hop the beer, I pulled out my Taihiki hops instead and used those. In the immortal words of Bob Ross, we don't make mistakes, we make happy accidents. So true. It's a solid beer. You know, every time that I get a chance to brew, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of, lot of experimentation certainly trying to dial in uh, my method with the equipment that I have. So overall, I would give this one three and a half tasters out of five on the flight board. Cheers, FBP Homebrew Project. Well, if you've got a beer you'd like me to drink and describe, leave a comment below. If you're a brewer and have one in mind, direct message me on Instagram and let's see what we can do. Well, that's all for this episode of the Five Beer Plan. With so many podcasts out there, thanks for choosing to listen to mine. Join me next time for an Aussie-themed segment of Looking for Lupulin, get my hop schedule kicked off on my latest homebrew, and roll out the first half of my conversation with Cody Moon from Science Project Brewing. Remember to hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes. I'd love to hear from you, so please follow me on Instagram, 5beerplan2022, and leave a comment to let me know what one of your favorite meteries is. Be sure to support your local breweries, Choose your beers wisely, 
and drink them responsibly. Until next time, keep walking your ale trail and stay thirsty, my friends. Mm -hmm.